from 2 Peter 3, 10 through 14. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Good morning. How you guys doing? Great. How many have the notes there? I want you to notice this amazing title for this message. Motivation for Living in a Doomed World. That was inspired, wasn't it? Like, aren't you guys excited about that? Sometimes I really have trouble. The hardest thing about the message is the title, you know, because it's got to encompass everything, but it can't say the same thing as one of the points. It's like, so I came up with this, and I was thinking about motivation. Uh, One of the jobs of a parent if you've ever been one, is to motivate your children, right? To motivate their, in, in different ways, but oftentimes their behavior. And uh, there are two, maybe there's more, but at least two approaches. One is the motivation by punishment and motivation by rewards, right? Punishment or rewards. If you do this, you get this or you get this, you know? Motivation by punishment or reward. And and again, if you've been a parent, you know, I mean, I'm sure Brian spends a lot of time punishing Fern, that four-month-old, you know. I mean, obviously, it's when it's appropriate, at different ages, different times. And so, uh, there's motivation necessary in Scripture. There's a lot of motivational passages, and we come to one today, and it contains both, and we'll see them both. It contains the motivation by punishment or motivation by reward. Uh, and so we come to the Peter's epistle, uh, Second Peter. If you have your Bibles, we're in chapter 3 that Christina just read for us, verses 10 to 14. And as usual, to understand these verses, you sort of need to understand the context they're given in. Remember, Peter is writing to the churches, to a group of churches, but these churches seem to be under attack, having false teachers infiltrating them. And one of the main heresies, uh, Peter calls it a destructive heresy that they're teaching, is a denial of Christ's return. And so in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 3, which we looked at last week, Peter sort of addresses these denials. His first point, he first points out that both the Old Testament prophets, Christ himself through his apostles, agree, they declare Christ will return. And if you examine what the prophets and what Christ himself and the apostles teach about his return, you'll find there will be uh, judgment followed by eternal destruction for the ungodly, punishment, and rescue, followed by eternal salvation for the godly, reward. And it's the judgment 
this judgment that the ungodly false teachers do not want to face. I don't want to be punished. And this sort of fuels their denial of Christ's return. We see this in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 3. Peter writes, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers, false teachers, will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So these scoffers are following and they're teaching others to follow their own sinful desires. And uh, this leads them to denials of Christ's return. Verse 4, they will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell, fell asleep long ago, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter then, in verses 5 through 9, following describing these scoffers, argues against them, and he argues for the promised return of Christ. He makes three points. First, he says that the scoffers are wrong, that all things haven't continued as they were from the uh, beginning of creation. He points to the fact that in the past, uh, God, by His Word, not only created the world, but He judged the world through the flood. And therefore, by the same word, he will judge the world again, not with water, but with fire. Then second, Peter says, the scoffers don't understand the apparent delay of Christ's return. I mean, again, remember, this is about 30 years. You know, we've waited about 2,000, and so they don't have quite the perspective. Why? Because they, they don't understand that God's eternal perspective on time is very different from our own, our own limited perspective. Verse 8 of chapter 3 But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. And finally, Peter points out that the reason for the apparent delay is because of God's great mercy and patience with His people. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." So Peter's made it clear that despite what the scoffers say, Christ will return. And when he does, he'll bring both rescue to those who trust in him and punishment, judgment for those who do not. And that brings us to our passage for today, which I'm going to break down into three parts. First, we'll see what will happen to the heavens and the earth when Christ returns. Second, We'll look at the promise of a new heavens and new earth. And third, based on what we see in uh, point one and two, we'll look at what sort of people we ought to be. So let's begin by looking at uh, the ever-popular destruction of our world. Yay. Just kidding. There have probably been thousands of uh, sci-fi books or movies that at least threaten the destruction of our world by uh, aliens, Independence Day, anybody? That's great. Meteors, Armageddon, got a good title there, right? Just the wrong sort of thing. Plagues, the Andromeda strain, anybody read that book or seen that? Michael Crichton? Anyway, and currently there are those who believe that human-caused global climate change is the greatest threat to the destruction of our world. But Peter and the rest of God's Word have a different understanding of how our world will come to an end. We just read verse 9 of chapter 3, which emphasizes the Lord's patience. But His patience is not eternal. 
judgment will come. The Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. This is Peter's description of the destruction of our world. Maybe even our universe, if you will. And he says it it will take place on the day of the Lord. And it will come from the, the very word, the hand of the Lord. Now, so far in this letter... Peter's emphasized the return of Christ. This is what the scoffers are denying, and this is what Peter is defending. But here in verse 10, he for the first time introduces uh, this, this phrase, this concept, the day of the Lord. Now the relationship between Christ's return and the day of the Lord is that Christ will return on the day of the Lord. The return of Christ initiates, begins what Scripture refers to as the day of the Lord. So why does Peter, uh, at this point, introduce the day of the Lord? Well, probably because he wants uh, to point us to the Old Testament Scripture. This is an Old Testament concept, Old Testament phrase, an Old Testament uh, prophetic word where the prophets speak of this day. It's, It's in the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and some of the minor prophets all talk about, we're going to read two passages about it. First in Zephaniah, chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, we read. So this is the backdrop. Peter just says the phrase, day of the Lord. But he knows, and his readers know, they're aware of what that means. The great day of the Lord is near, Zephaniah says. Near and hastening fast, the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blasts and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind." So that they shall walk like the blind, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them. On the day of the wrath of the Lord, in the fire of His jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a, sudden, for a full and sudden end, He will make all the inhabitants of the earth. So, you know, there's this time thing. Uh, it's near. Well, what does that mean? But the point is, it hasn't happened yet because he will make all the inhabitants of the earth suddenly uh, be consumed, the earth be consumed. So we're still waiting for that. But that's the day of the Lord. And this passage is typical of what the Old Testament prophets say regarding this, the day of the Lord. On that day, the Lord will pour out his wrath, his judgment on sinful mankind. We see this in Joel chapter 2, verses 30 through 31. Peter was really familiar with this passage. He quoted it in his first sermon in the book of Acts uh, on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Let's read from Joel, though. Prophet Joel, the Lord says through the prophet Joel, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So has anybody seen that happen yet? 
not me. So again, future, day of the Lord is in the future. Uh, and it will bring radical transformation and judgment to both the heavens and the earth. It will be a great and awesome day. But Joel adds a note of hope in verse 32. Next verse. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The day of the Lord is mainly, if you read the Old Testament, mainly a day of judgment. But for those who call on the name of the Lord, for those who trust in the Lord, they will be saved from God's wrath on that great and terrible day. So by introducing the day of the Lord, Peter wants his readers to remember that the Old Testament prophets declared this would take place when Christ returned. This is what's going to happen. These prophecies provide a foundation for Peter's really very brief description of God's judgment. He writes, Then, on the day of the Lord, the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth... On the day of the Lord, the wrath of God will be poured out upon the heavens, the sky above. We're not talking about heaven. We're talking about the heavens, the sky above, the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars, and the earth. They will pass away. They'll be burned up, dissolved. The day of the Lord means the destruction of the heavens and the earth. And in verse 10, Peter adds, and the works that are done on it, the earth, will be exposed. This likely means that the ungodly works, the sins that have been built up for thousands and thousands of years of unbelievers will be clearly revealed on that day. Don't know what that's going to look like. Don't know if there will be video. Don't know if there will be phones being thrown. No, just... Is that my phone? No, okay. Anyway, that would be apropos, right? This will provide the basis for God's judgment, the, the, the works that are, have been done on the earth of God's righteous, just judgment on the ungodly and on the earth they inhabit. Now, I should mention that there is some debate as to whether the earth will be I read about this, I got a little confused. Totally destroyed, or it will be purged by fire and then restored. Personally, I'm not sure how much it matters, but there's a big debate about it, so I'm just making you aware of it. It seems to me, at least in this passage, it's sort of a, a major passing away. But in either case, the day of the Lord, both the heavens and the earth, on that day, the, the land, the, the bodies in the sky, the, the physical earth, and the ungodly will experience the terrible wrath of God. And the righteous, those who call on the name of the Lord, again, let me just be clear, the righteous are not righteous because they are righteous in themselves, because they call on the name of the Lord and receive His righteousness to them. Peter doesn't say that here, but it's in the background of this book and his first book, so that's there. The righteous will be saved. They'll be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, and they'll be saved from God's judgment. And we should also note that Peter says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The day of the Lord, the return of Christ, the destruction of our world, and the ungodly will come like a thief. Now, what does that mean? Well, again, 
We can look at Scripture to help us understand there's a background. It was Jesus who first connected the day of the Lord's coming with a thief. That doesn't seem, you don't really don't want to connect Jesus to a thief, but Jesus did, so we can. In Matthew 24, he said, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Be ready. Because uh, the coming of the Lord is like the coming of a thief in the middle of the night into your house. Paul picks up on this analogy and applies it to the Thessalonian church. First Thessalonians chapter 5, he writes, While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief." I'm, I'm warning you. I'm telling you this is coming. You don't have to be uh, caught by surprise. So based on these scripture, we see that the day of the Lord coming like a thief means Christ will return suddenly, unexpectedly, and it will involve the destruction, the purging by fire of this world, the heavens and the earth, including all who do not call upon the name of the Lord, all who do not trust in Jesus Christ. And it will also include the deliverance, the salvation of those who are ready for His coming, those who are trusting in Him, those who are calling upon Him, those who are waiting eagerly for His return to bring their salvation. And what will that rescue involve? Well, that takes us to our second point. So that was the the negative. That's the punishment. Second point, uh, the creation of a new world. So on the day of the Lord, the heavens and the earth will pass away. They'll be destroyed, purged. The ungodly will be punished. But the godly, those who call upon the name of the Lord, those who trust in the Lord, will experience a new beginning. In verse 13 we read, But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. As believers, we're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth And this uh, phrase here, in which righteousness dwells. We'll talk more about that. We can be sure of this because God has promised it to us. Isaiah 65, the Lord declares, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in in that which I create. Scripture promises this new heaven this new earth, in a number of places, prophetic places mainly, but probably the most descriptive is found in Revelation chapter 21. The Apostle John is given a vision of this new world that God would create. He writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give forth the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have their heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Okay, amen. Notice one of the key characteristics of the new heaven and new earth is that God himself is right there in person. He'll sit on the throne. He'll rule in righteousness. He'll provide everything we need. He'll wipe away every tear, and he will keep out unrighteousness. He'll keep out sin. Verse 8, next verse right after this, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death. So we have the new heavens and new earth for those who trust in the Lord, receive His righteousness, uh, the lake of sulfur and fire for those who don't, those who do not put their faith in the Lord and continue in their sin as listed here. The first earth will pass away because of the unrighteousness, the sin of its people, but God will make sure that does not happen in the new heavens and new earth. That's what Peter makes clear in verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Where God dwells, there is but righteousness. This is wonderful news for those who are waiting for these, this new heaven and new earth. There will be no more temptation Therefore, no sin, no fear, no guilt, no death, no mourning, no pain, no, no more broken relationships with God or others. There will only be the joy of the Lord, and it will never cease. The presence of the Lord will fill the new heavens and the new earth. And as David writes, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know, people think like heaven... I mean, this is the, heaven, the new heavens, the new earth. I mean, this is our heaven, by the way. This is it. This is the, our final state. It's not going to be something else. And we think, oh, uh, you know, you hear, that's going to be boring. Well, if you think it's boring, you have no idea who God is. You've never spent any time with him. You haven't read his word. You haven't experienced him in your life because it's just going to be magnified because your flesh and everything is going to be removed and you're going to be in the presence of the Lord forever, where there is joy. You're just going to be in a constant state of joy. And I don't know what the pleasures are going to be, but they're going to be forevermore. That's what those who put their faith in Christ, those who are waiting for the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells, that's what we can look forward to. That's what's been promised. So there's a clear line here that Peter is drawing. When Christ returns on the day of the Lord, which will come like a thief, suddenly, unexpectedly, the heavens and earth will be destroyed or purged of all godlessness. 
It should serve as a warning to those who choose to follow in, in, in that day. Those, he's talking about those who are following those false teachers into sexual immorality, unrighteousness. This will be your fate as well. Destruction. Lake of fire, John saw. However, if you choose to trust in Christ, to live for Christ, a different fate awaits you. As promised by God... God will create a new heaven and a new earth for the righteous. Again, the righteous not within themselves, but because of their trust in Christ. And there you shall forever remain with the Lord. Amen? But that's not the end. Peter's speaking about a great climactic events that will take place sometime in the future. No man knows the day or the hour. Only the Father in heaven knows. Therefore, we need to start spending some time and effort figuring out when these things are going to take place. We should search the scriptures to put together the puzzle of when this is going to happen. Maybe even produce some detailed charts about what will happen leading up to Christ's return and what will take place when he returns or not. Okay, it didn't go over well. I'm saying no, we don't need to do that. Even though that's what so many people spend their time doing. I'm not against finding out everything Scripture has to say about eschatology. That's the theological word for end time stuff. But I am against those who believe they figured it all out and uh, say that if you don't believe the way I figured it out, there's something wrong with you. I'm against that. Because this is difficult stuff, you know. I mean, just for one example, what, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and clearly he's talking about the second coming and the end. Well, but the thief, isn't that the rapture? Well, that's a little confusing, right? How do you figure that out? Well, I'm saying maybe we don't need to figure that out. Here's what we need to do. I'm against, I'm most against ignoring the most important things the things the Scripture tells us to do as we wait for the day of the Lord. And it isn't charted out, guys. And that takes us to our final point, the application for life in this world. Okay, we've just seen the future. Now we're coming back to now. This is really Peter's point. He doesn't go into much detail about what will lead up to the day of the Lord. He doesn't talk about a rapture, a tribulation, a millennium, a beast, an antichrist, any of that. All of which is fine. I'm happy we can look into that. That's good. But Peter just puts forth the bottom line. The day of the Lord, Christ's return, will come unexpectedly. And the heavens and the earth and the ungodly will be judged, destroyed, dissolved. And God will create a new heavens and new earth where righteousness will dwell. And his point is, based on this, how then shall we live? That's the question Peter asks in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, he's pointing back to verse 10, where he described the destruction of the heavens and the earth. Since the world we live in, the heavens and the earth will be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? He asks the question and then he answers it, by the way. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Peter's seeking to motivate his readers 
to reject the false teaching, the false teachers who are trying to lead them away from Christ and lead them, in, in this case, into sexual immorality. He calls them to be people of holiness and godliness. The Greek word for holiness here is hagios, and it means to be pure, blameless, consecrated, set apart. And the word for godliness is the Greek eusebia, and it means reverent, respectful, specifically towards the Lord. So Peter wants us to live pure, blameless lives, to be consecrated, set apart to the Lord, to live in reverence and respect to Him. I could say to have Jesus Christ be the Lord of your life. There's lots of ways to put it. To live, uh, uh, when you come to Christ, He gives you a spirit that you might live righteously. To, he, he, he makes you His child. And now He's calling you to live as His child. To live under His rule and reign in your life. Now, if you've been to church very long, or read your Bible very much, this is, uh, will not come as a surprise to you. This morning in our prayer time, Sean read from 1 Peter chapter 1, right? Verses 14 to something. Anyway, basically Peter was saying, this is how you need to live, right? He's already said it. He's saying it again. This is what the Bible throughout teaches us regarding how we should live. Paul tells the Ephesians to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. He knows there's this old thing that's hanging on, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on a new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Put off the old, put on the new, which is created in the likeness of God. Be like God. Be perfect, for your Father in heaven is perfect. Be holy, for I am holy. The Scripture, that's what it teaches. It teaches us to live a Spirit-empowered, righteous, holy, godly life throughout. That's what the Word of God calls us. That's par for the course. That's, the, that's what we're... That's there. However... We often find ourselves struggling to be righteous, holy, godly people. To put off the old and put on the new. And just again, I'm going to say this, keep repeating this. The only reason we can put on the new is because Christ has made us new. He's did that, done that transformation. So this is to us, those who've trusted in Christ. We can still sometimes tend to cling to the old I mean, this was happening in the church there. You know, there were the coming, false teachers coming in and somehow saying things that was dragging people back into their old lives. Therefore, we need motivation to submit to the Spirit-purifying work of Christ in our lives. And what I find interesting is how Peter seeks to motivate us in verse 11 by reminding us that our world, the heavens we look up to and the earth we live on, will be dissolved. It's gone. It will be destroyed. So the question is, how does the fact that our world is going to burn motivate us to holiness and godliness? Well, I think what Peter is trying to point out is the futility of living for anything else besides holiness and godliness. For living for anything else, living for anything else besides the Lord Jesus Christ 
and His desire for your life. There's no point, no meaning in dedicating your life to wealth or power or fame or reputation. Ultimately, it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how big your house is, how fast or cool your car looks. I have a really cool RAV4. That's, it's not cool. Anyway. And my wife has a minivan. You know, my wife wanted a minivan. I wanted a Ford Mustang. And we compromised and got a minivan. Anyway. <laughs> it doesn't matter, matter how many followers you have on whatever the thing is today. I, Facebook is that old Instagram, Twitter. The people follow you on TikTok. I use none of these because I'm old. But uh, it doesn't matter. It's pointless. It doesn't matter how successful you are in business, in politics, in whatever profession you choose. And I could go on and on about what doesn't matter in this life. Because unless the things you have, you can have things, the less, and, uh, unless the things you do with your life are aiding in your or others' holiness and godliness... They're aiding in your relationship with God, your obedience to God, your love for God. Then, my friends, it's going to burn. Peter in chapter 2 gave us an example of the false teachers who were not living for holiness or godliness. They were doing the opposite. They were living for their own sinful desires. If you remember, they were greedy. They were living for wealth. They despised the authority of God and the apostles. They were living for their own power and fame and reputation. And they gave themselves over to sexual immorality. They were living for their own physical, temporal pleasure. And again, Peter says to them and to us, it's all going to burn. The only thing that's going to survive the fiery judgment of God at the end of this age are holy, godly people and those things done in holiness and godliness. The things we do by the power of the Spirit in obedience to God for Christ. The first missionary biography I ever read uh, was about a man named uh, C.T. Studd. I mean, if you have a name like that, you better be something. And he was. He lived from 1860 to 1931. When he was young, he was... Uh, Famous in England as a great cricket player. The Shohani Otani, Shohei Otani. I never can say that, his name. What's his name? Shohei Otani? Is that, is that good, Chuck? Thank you. I butchered that. He was that, that guy of, of his day. He was very uh, famous. At age 19, he was the captain of his team at Eton College. He excelled in both academics and athletics. And in 1885, he gave it all up to become a missionary to China. And one of my favorite C.T. Studd quotes, the one I always remember is, no man, uh, why should you stoop to be a king when you can be a missionary? That's not the one. That's a good one, but this is the one. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You can just feel his commitment to Christ and his understanding of what Peter is saying to us. The only thing that's going to last is what we do for Christ. What we do in holiness. 
what we do as we're set apart for Christ in godliness, in respect for Him, everything else will burn. This is certainly true for the false teachers, right? And the ungodly who followed them. But it's also true for every single one of us. It's true for true believers. If you waste your life in the pursuit of the things of this world instead of the things of God, then you, by God's grace and mercy, will be saved, but you will also suffer loss. That's what Paul says to the Corinthians, who were doing a bunch of stupid things they shouldn't have been doing. He says, each one's work will become manifest on the day, the day of the Lord. The day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on, the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. When the day of the Lord, uh, the day, the day of the Lord comes, believers, you and I, will be judged based on our works, based on what we did with our lives. And everything we did, everything we do that is not done for Christ, that is not done in holiness and godliness will be burnt up. And I don't know exactly what, 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 what it means. Uh, I don't know what it means that we will suffer loss. But I do know this passage is meant as a warning, and we need to take it seriously. We'll be saved, but we're going to suffer. In that moment, I don't, I don't know what it means. I don't really want to suffer loss in front of God. We'll suffer loss. Like Peter, Paul is warning believers to live lives of holiness and godliness, to do works of holiness and godliness for Christ in the power of the Spirit, and not to live for our own sinful desires, to, to put off the old and put on the new. Therefore, I challenge you as I, I challenge myself, look at your life in light of eternity. View things the way God views them. And then devote yourself every day in all that you do to what will last and not what will be burned up. And according to Second Peter... Verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 12, if you do this, you are waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. When, we'll, when we live in holiness and godliness, when we live for Christ, we show we're trusting Him, eagerly waiting for His return. And we are, in some way, Peter says, hastening the coming of the day of God, the day of the Lord. Now, what does this hastening mean? Well, remember just the verse... We read earlier, verse 9 of same chapter, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is holding back this day of the Lord because He wants all. All, we talked about this last week, all people, all elect to repent. That must mean if you do repent and lead a life of holiness and godliness, you remove at least one of the reasons for this delay. Therefore, Peter concludes that a life that repents and walks in holiness hastens the day of the Lord. 
I would also add that in the same way, when you share the gospel with others and they repent and they believe, they begin to live a life of holiness and godliness, we again hasten the day of the Lord. And when we take the gospel to the nations, penetrating unreached people groups that repent and believe and begin living in holiness and godliness, we hasten the day of the Lord. As Jesus said in Matthew 24, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come when the gospel has gone to every people group and those that will come to him, those who choose to or those who he has chosen. It doesn't, I mean, it matters, but for, for our sake, it doesn't matter. We need to take the gospel to the ends of the earth to hasten the day of the Lord. So Peter, in verses 10 through 12, has sought to motivate his readers to pursue the things of God, holiness and godliness, and not the things of the world, based on the fact that the world is going to burn. Then, okay, in verses 13 and 14, last two verses, he gives a very different motivation for living as God would have you live. So this is the We've done the punishment, now the reward. In verse 13, Peter writes, But according to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then just like he did in verse 11, he makes an application to how we are to live. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, for those who have faith in Christ, who are waiting for his return... Waiting for the day of the Lord, Peter says, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. In verse 11, Peter says, based on the destruction of the old world, you should uh, live lives of holiness and godliness. And in verses 13 and 14, he says, based on the promise of a new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells, you should be diligent. You should make every effort to be found by him, Christ, when he returns without spot or blemish and at peace. Look, he says, God has promised that he will create a new heavens and a new earth. And this new creation will be very different from the old. Very different from what we're living in now. And the greatest difference will be the fact that righteousness will dwell there. As we saw earlier, God will dwell with his people and he will not allow sin into this new creation only righteousness will dwell there and this is where you'll spend eternity in the new heavens and the new earth that god creates therefore be diligent right now to live a life of holiness and godliness why so when christ returns to create a new heaven and new earth you'll be found by him without spot or blemish the phrase without spot or blemish means to be spotless, unblameable, above reproach. No one can say, Christ will not say of you uh, anything bad, anything wrong. Peter's seeking to motivate us, saying when Christ returns like a thief unexpectedly, he'll create a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Wouldn't it be great... If he found you living righteously, not living for the things of this world like wealth and power and fame and physical pleasure, etc., but living for him, being found without spot or blemish, wouldn't that be awesome? And don't forget peace. 
Peter says, be diligent to be found by Christ at peace. Not living in fear, which is pervading our world. Not stressed out. Not worried about the future. I mean, if, it, if Amy and John certainly have reason to be worried about their friends and their future, but, you know, because they know the Lord, they can be at peace. Be at peace, at rest. Because you know, no matter what your circumstances are, no matter how bad things get on this earth, the Lord is coming back. And He'll destroy. He'll purge the sin from this world. And He'll create a new world where righteousness dwells. So to quote that wonderful, maybe 70s, 80s band, Christian band from Riverside, the Sweet Comfort Band. Dave knows about the Sweet Who knows about the Sweet Comfort Band? People get ready. The time is at hand when my Lord Jesus is coming again. Get ready. Be diligent to be ready for Christ's return. Live every day knowing that the ungodly world around you will burn. Now that should cause you maybe some glee sometimes. It's all going to, but it's just going to, should cause you to think, and this person that I love who doesn't know Jesus, they're going to burn. What am I going to do about that? And God will create a new heavens and new earth where you will live for all eternity. Therefore, pursue a life of holiness and godliness. Be diligent to be found by Him when He returns without spot or blemish and at peace. So, go do that. Well, I got a little bit more because I want to tell us how to do that. Hopefully, Peter's given us some motivation to feel motivated. I remember before football games when I was in high school, the Coach would sometimes try to motivate us with some stupid speech. I was just motivated because I didn't want to lose. <laughs> but, uh, but we need more motivation. And even more than motivation, maybe we need power. And how do we find the power to live holy, godly, above reproach, at peace lives? In the midst of turmoil, in the midst of sin. Well, first and foremost, we must again come to Christ. We must trust in Christ. We must give our life to Christ. Trust that Christ alone, by His sacrificial death on the cross, has and can truly remove all of your blemishes and spots, your sin. And then not only remove them, but then empower you by His Spirit to live holy, godly, righteous, above reproach, at peace lives. A motivating factor to this is knowing you can do it. And you might think, I can't do it. And you're right, you can't do it. But with the Spirit of God, you can do it. In our weakness, He is strong. That's what we learned I mean, we learn that He empowers us, that the only way we can live this life is through the power of Christ. That's what we learned in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5. through 5. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. 
Wow. God, by the power of His Spirit and through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ, has given us everything we need, everything we need for life and godliness and holiness and above reproachness, everything we need. He's empowered us to live holy, godly lives. And He empowers us how? Through the knowledge of Himself, through the revelation of God's Word uh, we find in God's Word through the promises, the knowledge of the promise of His very great and precious promises found in His Word. Therefore, it's when we go to His Word, when we read, when we believe, when I put our trust in His promises, specifically, in this case, the promise of Christ coming and judging and creating a new heaven, a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It's then when we truly trust in Him, the knowledge, the promises He gives, that we become partakers of His divine nature. We become more like Him. We become holy, godly people. It's then we escape the corruption that is in the world because of our sinful desires. It's then that we're found without spot or blemish. So, in conclusion, I challenge us all to remember and be motivated by these things. Remember that this world, along with all our earthly pursuits, will be destroyed. Pleasant? I don't know. Remember that God will create a new world where He will rule and righteousness will dwell. That is great. Remember that through the knowledge of God found in His Word, He has given you right now everything you need for life and godliness. And be motivated to diligently, by His power, live godly, holy lives. That on the day of the Lord, when Christ returns unexpectedly, He will find you without spot or blemish and at peace. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank You for Your Word. And just so much here about what will happen in the future, the destruction and the recreation. But Father, uh, I pray that we would take that to heart today, that we would know that that's coming unexpectedly, but it would cause us, it would motivate us to live for you now, to live for your new creation, to live righteously because we will live righteously throughout all eternity, to not live for the things of this earth, the things of this world, for they will burn. Father, I just thank you for, for Peter and his straightforwardness and his willingness to, to tell it like it is. Father, I, ta- I pray that we would take it to heart and it would affect how we live in Christ's name. Amen. All right, if you would stand as we finish out the service.